This is Philip Reeve. I'm an author of science fiction and children's books, and you're listening to Dead Hand Radio. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Philip, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Yes. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Welcome to Dead Hand Radio. Thank you for asking me on. Oh, well, I appreciate you accepting the invitation. So science fiction is my favorite genre of everything, books, movies, um, you name it. I love science fiction. And I was happy to find out that you were willing to come on the podcast and talk with me about it. Mm, Sure. Now, you've uh, been a fan of sci-fi since you were young but not since you were wee little guy right no no I didn't when I was a child I didn't like it I was quite scared of it um and you know all the sort of science fiction I I glimpsed always seemed to be kind of quite horrific and alarming and uh, all about kind of alien invaders and things and I didn't like being scared as a child people people say children enjoy you know being 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 frightened but I never did I tried to avoid it. Um, so I used to, I, used, I liked fantasy a lot. I liked, I liked sort of myths and legends. And then as I got a bit older, I, I got into, um, you know, the Lord of the Rings and, and things like that. Um, but it, I didn't really like science fiction until Star Wars came out in 70, I guess it was 78 by the time it arrived in Britain. And um, I was very excited by that because it was it was um, basically all the sort of stuff that I liked from myths and legends and fantasy, but with this kind of technological gloss. So suddenly I realized that I liked science fiction, but that was the stuff for me. And that sent me off to the library and I started reading loads and loads of um, science fiction stuff. Most of it probably from the 50s and 60s, I think, just because of, that's what was sort of you know, that's what washed up on the shelves of the public library. So so lots of Ray Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke and Heinlein and people like that. So all the, all the kind of the classics, really. Um, and that was my thing. That was what I read, really, through my early teens. Um, so I sort of laid down this great kind of groundwork of science fiction. Um, and then I, then I sort of went off it a bit as a, I suppose, when I was at, at college and in my 20s, I didn't pay that much attention to it. But when I started writing my own stuff, that was what came out. I kind of delved back down into all that stuff that I'd, I'd loved in the past. And I found I was kind of a science fiction writer. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that uh, the world of science fiction uh, collided with your work or with your interests, because without that, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. Sure. Yes. I mean, it's it's possible we would have come across each other in different, mm-hmm. in a different way, but uh, we certainly share that interest in science fiction. Um, so you and I are exactly the same age, mm-hmm. and I think um, I had a little bit earlier uh, introduction to science fiction with the movie Alien. Um. If you want to talk about scary, I think that's a, the, probably the scariest science fiction movie ever made. For sure, yes, yes. That's a little bit after Star Wars, isn't it? Isn't that a couple of years later? Because I, I remember it. I remember that coming out, and um, I, I was too young to go and see it. And again, I, I wasn't very 
you know, other kids kind of all sneak into X-rated movies, don't they? But I never did. I kind of waited till I was, I was legally old enough to go and see them. But um, but there was a there was a thing called a photo novel of Alien, and I've never seen anything else like it. But it was it was like stills of every single scene in the in the book, sort of done as like a comic. And uh, I had that in kind of 1980 or something. So I kind of, by the time I actually did see the film, I knew literally every shot. Um, so I, I sort of got it that way. But yes, I mean, that was a, I was, I was into science fiction by that time. And that was a big influence on me, the, um, the production design and stuff. Oh, for Alien? Mm, yeah, absolutely. All that. Not, I mean, not just the alien itself, which is the, you know, the, the, the obvious thing that people remember, the H.R. Geiger stuff, but um, Ron Cobb's uh, designs for the, the spaceship interiors and all the, all the tiny little details of the sort of the, um, the shoulder patches on the uniforms and the, the little the signage on the walls and stuff, it, everything in there is, is just perfection. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I poured over all that stuff in the kind of concept art books and things. Well, the um, those those two movies were certainly influential in in my life as well, uh, but I didn't take the path of writer. I went uh, on a little bit of a different path, and I didn't really discover my creativity until later on in life. But when when was it that you first realized that you were a storyteller? You know, I I've been. I first realized, I think I first realized it when I was like about five and um, I had a notebook from somewhere that had like a blank page and a, a lined page facing each other all the way through. And on the lined page, I wrote a story and it was, I can tell you the whole thing. It was called Spike and Sly. So it was science fiction actually, weirdly, although I didn't write, I don't know, I didn't like science fiction. I wrote a science fiction story when I was five and it was called Spike and Spook Go to the Moon and Spike was an astronaut and Spook was his dog. And the story went, Spike and Spook, one day Spike and Spook went to the moon, but they met a monster. So they came home again, the end. And then on the, on the facing page, which was blank, I drew a picture to go with it. And, um, and I thought, oh, I'm a writer, an illustrator. And that was kind of my thing um, after that. I kind of was always writing and always drawing pictures. Um, which, you know, possibly was a mistake. I think it might be better to do it the way you have, to go off and, and do, you know, real jobs and sensible things and, you know, actually do real life stuff uh, and then discover your creativity later. I think that might be healthier. But um, no, I was just I was just always kind of in, in my own imagination after that, knocking out illustrations and, and, and stories. Um, and I didn't know... I had no idea how you became a writer. I, I knew people did, but I, I didn't know how you got there. So I, I took the illustration path. I went off to art college and um, studied illustration and eventually ended up illustrating books for years and years. Um, but I kept writing all the time as a, as a hobby. Uh, it, it's a good question that you had asked at, at a young age. And it's, it's a question that many people still have. And that is how to become a writer and get your work published. Do you have any additional insight into that now that you've been in the business for, for a while? Well, not really, because, you know, the business has changed so colossally um, in the, I, I, it's 20 years since my first novel was, was published and it's changed so much in that time um, with the, you know, the rise of eBooks and Amazon and things like that, that uh, I really don't know anything about it anymore. Um, but I think, I think the thing, I think, 
I think just persistence, really. I think if I'd, I think if I had, when I was 18 or 19, if I, or, or when I, maybe when I just come out of college, if I, if I had started sending stuff to publishers then, I think something would have got published. But I just used to think, oh, nobody's going to be interested in what I, what I do. So I'd sort of sit on it um, until eventually, once I was an illustrator, and I kind of knew how publishing worked a bit more and I kind of knew people in it. It didn't seem quite so off-putting. And, and then I was able to um, I was able to start sending stuff in. But I think you could really, you know, you can really start doing that as soon as you feel ready, as soon as you have something that you think is is good, it's probably worth showing it to somebody because it might be. It'll probably get rejected, but it's it's part of a process. You just keep on you keep on uh, submitting different things to different places. I think it always seems like good advice to get your foot in the door however you can by getting to know the certain people in certain places that can open up doors for you. Yeah, for sure. And these days, um, you know, with social media, which of course didn't exist when I was starting out, um, I think it's in a way, in a way it's easier because you can, you can talk to people, you can get online and, and follow writers and publishers and editors and people and, um, you know, become part of that world before you're actually showing anybody your, your, your work. So in a way that must be much easier. On the other hand, of course, the kind of rise of the internet has also pretty much destroyed the possibility of ever making any money out of it. So it's a, <laughs> it's a kind of swings and roundabouts situation. And uh, the idea that it's easier for one person means it's uh, easy for a million people. So you have all this new additional competition to, to getting into the business. Yes. I mean, just just making, you know, making people aware that you've got a book out is is terrifyingly difficult now because there's so much that there's so much to compete with there's so much noise maybe it was always that way I don't know because of course the other thing that's changed is back when I started and this is only 20 years ago my first book came out uh, 19 years ago I think Um, but then you gave your book to a publisher they would publish it and they would publicize it Um, and now you're kind of right in there you're part of that process as an author you're you're sort of um you know, you're expected really to, to, to be out there shouting about your wares all the time, which is which is not necessarily what we all got into it for, really. But um, but it's, you know, it's uh, as I say, it's got upsides and downsides. It's quite nice to have that that sort of uh, instant connection with people and be able to, 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 to just sort of talk to readers and things online. That's that's it's often really nice. But um but it, it, it has changed the job quite significantly, I think. It would seem, uh, yeah, that things have changed from the days when if you wanted to reach out to your favorite author as a, as a reader, um, you'd have to sit down and write it out, put it in an envelope, put it in the mail, wait for a couple of weeks, if ever, to get a response. And now you could just send them and, you know, you could, most people, you could find their email address relatively easy on the internet. You could send them an email or you could even reach out to them on, on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah. It's good for, for the readers as well as for the writers to have that connection it with is, the audience. It is. Yeah. Uh, so do you have a particular writer that you could, um, that you could point to as an influence or an inspiration? Yeah, I, well, I, I, I have lots, you know, I, um, Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings, when I was like nine, I suppose, um, my, 
my parents read that to me and then I read it again to myself and, and um, that was absolutely my top favorite book for, 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 for many years. And I still, I still go back to it, I still love it. And I think in terms of building an imaginary world, I don't think I've ever found it done better. I think, you, I th I think it's a most remarkable creation. So that's, that's been a huge influence on me because inventing worlds is what I do mostly. I don't, my, I don't write the kind of science fiction that is set in our world. I, I like to imagine um, implausible futures and other planets and things. Um, so, so Tolkien was a big influence. And then in my teens, Ray Bradbury, um, he was like the first writer and I, I read loads of science fiction. You know, I would sort of go to the library and the, the science fiction books were yellow. They, a lot of them, they were published by Victor Golantz over here, who, who obviously, you know, they were like the big sci-fi publisher who, who published all the 50s and 60s stuff. So you'd kind of look along the library shelves for the yellow covers and just take them because they were science fiction. Those are the ones I wanted to read. So I read loads and loads of this stuff. And I, I discovered Ray Bradbury in among all this, his stories. And I was very, very taken with his style I think he I think that was the first time and I must have been like about 14 when I when I came across this stuff and it was kind of the first time when I started reading for the language rather than just for the story you know before that I'd kind of assumed a a uh, as a story was a delivery system for ideas and plot and then with Bradbury I realized actually no it is that but it's also it's about the language and how you use words and how you use metaphors and things and um Nowadays, when I read Ray Bradbury, I find it a little bit overwrought, quite a lot of it, a little bit um, too uh, purple for me. But um, at the time, you know, when I was 14, uh, his stuff um, just blew my socks off. And that really made me want to, to write. And then loads of other people as well, you know, loads, loads of writers, not just science fiction writers, too, but um, lots and lots of different ones. And the thing is, when you're young and you get like a favourite writer you get hooked on, you start to try and copy them. So when I was um, 12 or something, I was knocking out kind of fake Tolkien, um, which must have been appalling. And then when I was an older teenager, I was, I was turning out fake Ray Bradbury, which was probably equally bad. But eventually, I think you start to have so many influences feeding in that hopefully um, they don't exactly cancel each other out, but they, they kind of combine and some sort of chain reaction happens and, and you end up with your own style. So, um, so yeah, I have loads of influences, but those would be the first two, I would think, that would be relevant here. What was it that made you decide to go into children's and young adult fiction? Um, it, well, it was really simply um, that I was working as an illustrator, and of course, as an illustrator, you're mostly in children's books. Well, I'd been writing this, this great big novel, this great big sort of science fiction fantasy kind of novel that eventually became Mortal Engines, my first published work as a writer. Um, I've been working away at it and I've been assuming it was an adult book, you know, I thought it was a, it was a science fiction novel. It was, it was kind of inspired by all the stuff that I'd, I'd read as a teenager. So when it, when it was finished or, you know, readable, there was, there was a, a finished draft, um, I sent it out to a bunch of different adult publishers and uh, nobody was interested at all. Nobody, nobody would even look at it. It wasn't that they, they read it and, and said, no, this is rubbish. They just wouldn't look at it. Um, and that was kind of frustrating. So I thought, well, OK, I'm, I, I have a, a bit of a name in the children's book world because people know I'm an illustrator. So maybe um, they might sort of take me a bit more seriously. So I sent it to a, to, to a children's publisher, to Scholastic, who I, I know are very big in the States, but they have a, a, a UK 
division as well. I sent it to them and um, they liked it. And they didn't make, you know, I, I sort of thought, oh, you know, maybe this is too grown up. Maybe it's too, it's too dark and too strange and, and, and too adult. But they didn't really demand any big cuts or changes to it. Uh, they, they, it needed a lot of shaping because I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, it needed a lot of, um, I, I rewrote it several times in, in various different ways. But I was, I was able to be as dark and as strange as I wanted to be. Um, and it, you know, to me, it's very much the sort of novel that I would have been reading um, as an adult sci-fi novel back in the, back in the, back in the, the, the early 80s. So, um, so that was fine. And I thought, well, okay, I can do what I want here. So I am now a children's writer. And it's, you know, it's generally worked out pretty well. That's interesting. So what you said when we first started talking about um, for, for new writers that are trying to get into, uh, that are trying to get noticed, and the one thing you said is probably the most important thing is persistence. And you didn't allow um, being ignored or n not even rejected, just simply being ignored. You didn't allow that to deter you from submitting to other um, potential venues for the book. No, strangely, because I usually give up very easily. I've got no, uh, no persistence at all. But I think I'd been working on Mortal Engines for a long time and there was a lot of it. So I'd kind of invested quite a lot of um, time and effort into it. And it would have been annoying to, to, to just have it all wasted. Um, and also, I think I thought it was I thought it was basically good. I think you kind of know whether something's any good or not. And I knew it wasn't perfect, but I thought there's something here you know there's something there's something worth having and these people are idiots if they won't read it so that that made me keep going uh well congrats for uh for your persistence paying off for you your um so your career as a writer it has been uh nearly 20 years right yeah it'll be 20 years next autumn since uh, mortal engines was published so it's 19 years, effectively. What am I saying? <laughs> it's 19 oh, years okay. to, the, to the day, virtually, that I've been a writer or published writer. And how has your work evolved since you started? Um, that's an interesting question. When I started, when I wrote Mortal Engines, I was just trying to write Mortal Engines. I didn't really have any kind of long-term plan. I assumed, you know, I thought it would be really nice if I can get this published. And then I, 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 you know, I'll go back to being an illustrator. That would be fine. Um, but of course, it doesn't really work that way. Publishers don't want to just publish one book. They want to know what the next one is. And when I gave them Mortal Engines, they said, oh, well, you know, is there going to be a series? Is there going to be a sequel? And I thought, no, because I've killed everybody off. It's tremendously violent. It's an incredibly bloodthirsty book, a children's book. I was amazed they published it. Everybody, well, virtually everybody ends up dead at the end of Mortal Engines. Um, which is a problem when you start looking at the sequel. And then I thought, well, maybe it's not a problem. It's, it's more of an opportunity because I can, um, you know, I can take the, the, the remaining characters and they can go off and have another adventure in another part of this, uh, this strange futuristic world I've created. So I did that and, and the world, of course, started to grow around them and, and become more complex and different subplots and things develop. And it, it, turned into, it started turning into a trilogy and then the third one got so huge and unwieldy that it ended up as a quartet, so the four books all together. Um, and that kept me busy for, you know, for, for five or six years, I suppose, writing those. And then I went back to that world and did, and did prequels set in it. And this is, I suppose we should say what the world actually is. It's, it's a, a sort of distant future. 
in which um, our, our society has, has been wiped out and destroyed by war and disasters and things. And uh, in its place, the civilization has arisen where the cities move around, they, they rumble out on great big caterpillar tracks and um, uh, try and catch each other, basically. The big ones catch the littler ones and, and, and consume them. They, they, you know, they break them up and, and use their raw materials. So it's this kind of ridiculous um, steampunk food chain going on. And, um, and that kept me busy for a long time. And then having, you know, there comes a point when, you know, you need to, you need to change, I discovered. You can't just keep doing the same stuff. So there was a sort of, there was a sort of a moment where I didn't quite know what I was doing. And I, I kind of went off and did some, I went off and did some sort of comic, comic fantasy novels for a slightly younger readership, which I, which I really enjoyed writing, um, called Goblins. And then I ran into an, illust an American illustrator called Sarah McIntyre, who lives over here. And we hit it off and we started, uh, we came up with this plan of doing books together. So I started doing books with her and therefore an even younger age group. But um, doing those somehow reignited all my creative energy. I'd started to get a bit, a bit tired of it all. And, a bit, and I was starting to think maybe, you know, I'd come to the end of my, my writing career. Uh, and then working with Sarah kind of made me remember that actually I really enjoyed it. And I, I set off and did another huge science fiction epic called Railhead, which um, is, again, it's the far future, but it's a, it's a much more high-tech future, much more, um, every, things kind of work and, and, and humanity has spread out across the, across the galaxy um, through, the, through the means of, of hyperspace trains, because I found spaceships a bit boring to write about. So they use, they use trains which uh, go through hyperspace portals and um and everything everything is sort of ruled over by by benign artificial intelligences i started out trying to i, I was trying to write a utopia because mortal engines is, is basically dystopian so i thought i should write a utopia but of course utopias are quite boring to set a story in so it kind of started to, to go a bit sour around the edges and um, i do like ruins as well i was looking at your photographs on your website the other day all those um, abandoned train yards and things and thinking, yeah, this is my stuff. I think I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you had a chance to look at that, and I appreciate your comment. Oh no, that's. Uh, I mean, that, I think that's. I think there's there is something very science fictional about about ruins and, and industrial ruins and, and decaying stuff. This is this is very much where I come from. So my utopia had to have a few kind of abandoned worlds where everything's falling apart. So it's you know it became it sort of became as as big and dark and complex as as the mortal engines world really. So that's what that's what I've been doing for nineteen years, and uh, and now I've just I've finished um, the railhead trilogy a couple of years ago there's a book called station zero it's, it's railhead blacklight express and station zero and that's the that's the trilogy and since then i've been kind of i've been knocking out books with with sarah mcintyre which are sort of fun for, for younger kids um and wondering what to do next so that's that's kind of where it's gone so far and what i'll do next will be will be another another swerve so i'm kind of moving away from science fiction a bit at the moment into something more kind of i don't know gothic novel. <laughs> in, in my mind, that seems to be a logical next step for somebody who creates a, a trilogy or a series of novels the way you have, because you've pretty much spent all of your creative energy in that area. So if you go do something different, um, it's, it's going to dredge up some new and interesting ideas 
that you can then go back into the science fiction world uh, uh, or and create a new world. Like it sounds like you've created multiple worlds throughout your writing career, which that in my mind is seems to be one of the hardest things a storyteller could do is world building. Okay. I, for me, that's the fun bit. That's the, that's the, um, not exactly the easy bit, but it's the, it's the enjoyable bit. It's, it's like playing, you know, just inventing stuff. And, and, and one idea tends to lead to another. So, so worlds in a way build themselves once you, once you come up with the, the central idea. Um, and the tricky bit is the, is the plot and the characters, you know, it's, it's finding a story. It's finding a story to tell in that world that is um, worth telling uh that's worth getting people to spend spend time in the world so that's the, that's what takes the time really um yeah but but yes I, I guess doing something different is is good and a lot of the authors i admire don't stick to one genre you know they're, they're not just science fiction writers they do go off and do other things and I, I i think that's always i think it's always good i think it's good to, to change um and it, it, it sort of makes people notice you again it's another way of, of getting noticed I, I guess in this this great oversaturated media landscape we, we live in um i, I really I, I found when i when i started working with with sarah mcintyre suddenly oh philip reeve is doing books for younger kids and he's collaborating with somebody and it's different and so people who had kind of who have been going, oh yes, another Philip Reeve novel, suddenly go, oh, this is different. And it's a way of it's a way of drawing attention back to yourself, I guess. And it's, you know, creatively, it's 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 very good. You sort of think, you know, all right, I'll do a Western or something. And you have to, it forces you to start doing different things. But of course, then what happens is that all the same things come back, which is quite interesting. There are like sort of certain images and things that keep recurring, whatever genre I write in, uh, certain things recur and certain types of characters and things so you start to you start to discover I guess what your you know what your personal mythology is so if I understood you correctly you said that you're kind of right now looking for the next big idea um well I'm no I'm I'm, I'm writing something at the moment which is um it's it's a it's a his sort of a historical fantasy it's set up because I'd, I'd created a whole galaxy I thought it would be uh, nice to, to just concentrate on one island so I've imagined a little island just sort of out in the Atlantic somewhere fictional island but um, but ruled you know part of part of Britain ruled over by the British crown and um, it's sort of around about 1800 something like that and uh, things go on there it's a, it's a fantasy it's not it's not a it's not a historical novel but it's got a historical setting which makes it makes it different um, to what I've done recently. And uh, so I'm, I'm beavering away at that at the moment. Okay, good. Uh, is there any time, uh, time frame on when that will come out if people are interested? Uh, no, no, I'm hoping next year, but of course the, uh, the coronavirus has, uh, um, all bets are off, I don't know at all. It's, uh, it's all very, everything's, um, everything's sliding at the moment. So many uh, schedules have been disrupted. I have no idea but uh, hopefully next year sometime. Well, since you mentioned the coronavirus, I was going to uh, I was going to talk to you about the future of science fiction and where the the genre is going to go. Do you have any insight about that? Because the reason I I tie that in with the coronavirus is that 
typically when you have a world changing event such as this, many uh, creative works come out of that and reference that point in history. And it's almost like a catalyst to, um, for the entire creative world to reinvent itself. Yeah, it's, I mean, one of the most depressing things about it actually is this thought that we're gonna to have to sit through loads of coronavirus movies and novels. And I just don't want to, you know, I'm not interested. I don't wanna watch that stuff. Um, so I think, this, I think the things that will, and I don't think anybody else does either. I think if you, you look back at the 1918 influenza, epidemic it doesn't leave a great trace on popular culture there aren't there aren't great flu movies and great flu novels I can think of a few um, sort of autobiographies where it, where it gets a mention uh, but it's and, and a few historical novels where it, you know it sort of becomes a, a, a plot point at the end of a first world war novel or something but it's it hasn't I don't think it left a great mark on the culture and I, I hope this one won't either. I don't think it will. I think the things that will be interested or, or interesting and the things that will, will last will be things that are influenced by it, but don't reference it directly. Um, so I think, you know, we, we're getting a, 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 an interesting um, view of how disasters and, and emergencies actually unfold which we haven't had for a, a while. My, my generation hasn't really had that. I think one of the things that I liked about a lot of the, the science fiction, when I look back at a lot of the science fiction that I read when I was growing up, I think a lot of its power comes from the fact that the people writing it had been through World War II. Um, a lot of them, people like John Wyndham, who's a, a great science fiction writer over here, who wrote about various, uh, various disasters. Um, have you heard of Day of the Triffids? Yes, that's, I've never read the book, but a lot of, of people that I uh, talk to on social media have, and they say it's an excellent work. That's, I mean, it's a, it's a book about, about killer, everybody goes blind and killer plants take over the world. Um, but that's probably his sort of most famous book. But he wrote several others as well about various different sort of threats and and calamities that befall us. Um, and there's a, there's a, tremendous sort of realism to them because I think, you know, he, he'd been through the, the war in, in, in Europe and he, he knows what it looks like when civilization collapses. And J.G. Ballard, who, who sort of takes over from him and, and, and writes the great disaster novels and fascinating, strange science fiction novels of the early 70s, and who has, has been a huge influence on me again, like, like Bradbury, his, his style of writing is, is, is extraordinary. Um, and he, you know, he grew up, Empire of the Sun, uh, his autobiographical novel, which was filmed by Spielberg. Um, he grew up in a, in a, in a Japanese internment camp after the, after the fall of Shanghai. So that's not the kind of childhood that most people writing in the West today have had. You know, th these people have had experiences that my generation has not had. Uh, so they understood certain things about human nature and certain things about the way people react to um, catastrophic events. And so maybe, you know, maybe, maybe we're getting a lesson in that and, and, and maybe that's going to influence um, science fiction going forward. Um, it's all a lot more, it's a lot more, it's a lot more boring than you'd think it would be. You know, we have this, this huge sort of virus running riot across the, across the globe. And it's, mo you know, most people's experience of it, I think, is boredom. 
which is quite interesting. So I think that sort of thing might might find its way into into, into books. Well, when you mentioned the you know any books or movies that are going to come out about the coronavirus in particular, um, I think that is going to be kind of boring. I agree with that. I've got no desire at all to read a bourgeois novel about you know a family dealing with 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 the virus. Um, I'm not touching those with a barge pole. No way. And I don't think anybody else is either. I don't think anybody wants that. I don't think there's a market for that stuff. Yeah, I, I can't really see that there would be. Maybe in soap opera novels or whatever you call those. Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, the thing is, I guess people are going to kind of have to deal with it. I suppose the soap operas and things, I don't really watch TV soaps, but I guess they're going to have to. If they're, I, I don't know how it's in America, but in Britain, we have these quite popular TV soaps that are meant to be about real life, you know, little communities. And uh, I guess they must all be um, doing coronavirus uh, storylines at the moment. But um, but God, I'm glad I don't watch them. <laughs> oh, same here. I don't I don't watch those either. Uh, well, that's that's interesting insight. See, this is one of the things that I love about doing podcasting is that I get to talk to people who have different ideas and different insights from different parts of the world, from different generations, and each person I talk to has a unique way of looking at things. And um, I, I just really enjoy talking to people and hearing their perspective on different things, even though a lot of times I don't agree with everybody that I'm talking with, but this is not a debate. This is my opportunity to learn more about you as a person, as a creative and how you see the world. So it's just an interesting exchange of ideas that I enjoy. Sure. To be honest, I'm not sure I agree with me. I'm just, I haven't really sort of discussed this with anybody particularly. So um, a lot of these ideas are kind of straight off the top of my head and I may well find that I, um, I change my mind later, but that's my, that's my um, kind of immediate reaction to the question. Well, and I appreciate you being candid about that too. Um, now there, I, uh, I did some background, a little bit of background research on you before we had a chance to talk just so that I would have a little understanding of who you are and, and the work that you do. And I came across your blog. Do you want to give your blog out for people who are interested? Oh, uh, <laughs> yes, I do. But it's called, it's called Station Zero after the last book. I had a, I had a catastrophe. I, I had a, one of those great civilizational disasters. I used to have a website uh, with a blog attached to it. And it got sort of infested with malware somehow. And um, I couldn't get rid of it. And uh, nor could any of the um, web experts I employed to do so. So I had to shut it down. Because, of course, the, you know, if you're a children's writer, the last thing you want is... Um, people going to your website and being diverted to dubious Russian spam sites and things. So, um, so I, I, in desperation, I just set up a little blogger blog and it's, it's, it's called station zero because that was the, that was the book I was working on at the time. And it was the first thing that came to mind. And there you will find me reviewing random films and TV shows and stuff like that, mostly, and occasionally talking about a new book. And I would like to talk about one of the reviews that you, published i think it was earlier this year about the blade runner movie or the the two blade runner movies um and because 
the original Blade Runner movie is such a well-known and beloved movie in the science fiction genre. And it's been touted on several lists of, you know, top 100 or top 10 lists as the greatest science fiction film ever made. Your review was a little bit different than what I've ever read about that movie. And uh, again, I'm not trying to debate you. I just would like you to, to take an opportunity to express a, a couple of your ideas that you gleaned from watching that movie several times over the years. Well, I remember Blade Runner coming out in 82 and rushing to the cinema to watch it and then rushing back a couple of days later to watch it again and again and again, because uh, I didn't have a video in those days. <laughs> and um, the only way when a good film came out, you just had to keep watching it as many times as you could and try and memorize it um, because it was extraordinary. It was, it was absolutely stunning. And, you know, I, I can completely see why it has the reputation it does because there had been nothing like that before. It, 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 it revolutionized science fiction completely um, to the extent that even now, most science fiction movies that are set in that sort of milieu, a sort of future future city scape, tend to look quite a lot like Blade Runner. That's where that's what you reference. That's the that's the the start of it all. Um, and it, it was it was incredibly groundbreaking in in various ways. I think the main one is that it understands that the future isn't going to be. It, it's going to be built on top of the present. Um, when I was younger, in the 1970s science fiction stuff, people would tend to film in, uh, in sort of very modern university campuses or in, in kind of Brasilia or somewhere like that in these, these shining glass cities. And this was what the future was going to look like. But of course, the future is going to look like that. But as William Gibson said, it's not going to be very evenly distributed. So you'll get this stuff and then you'll get the old tenement blocks and the kind of crumbling buildings and, the, and, and Blade Runner understands that. And it has glass, you know, fantastic skyscrapers and things. And next door to them, there are these kind of ancient 19th century tenements, which have been kind of repurposed and have strange ducts and things all over them. So it's the most extraordinarily vivid imagining of the future I think I've ever really seen on screen and it was stunning it was stunning when it came out in 82 it was absolutely amazing and to this day like if I go to London um I'll sort of come out of the the railway station there and maybe it's raining a bit and it's it's dark and the neon signs are glowing and it's Blade Runner it's this it's this sort of uh, um, essential reference. So I'm, I, I'm not trying to um, run it down in that sense. I don't think you can take that away from it. It's, 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 it's a staggering um, achievement um, visually. Uh, and in terms of atmosphere as well, the music is, is, is terrific. It's the, the Vangelis score is absolutely astonishing and combined with the visuals, those great sort of booming synthesizer notes. Um, it's the most fantastic thing. Uh, but um, the story doesn't really hang together. And I didn't realize this when I was, when I was a teenager watching it when I, in, the, in 82 and afterwards I, when I'd watch it, um, I think I was so seduced by the, the, the visual um, quality of it that I didn't, it didn't bother me, but really the story doesn't work. Um, or it, it, you know, it works, but it doesn't work very well. It doesn't work as well as it should. Um, 
it's like, and I think Ridley Scott possibly does this, and I think he did it with Alien as well. He kind of gets a good script and then kind of kicks vital supporting pillars out of it. Um, so that's a pro that's not that's not really a problem in Alien. It's just that he changed the script, so the whole sort of thing of the aliens' reproductive cycle. That if you read the novelization, is quite different, and that's because he's knocked out. Um, you know, fairly vital bits of information. But that doesn't really matter because it still functions perfectly well as a, as a horror movie. Um, but with a, with a detective movie, with a, with, a, with a whodunit, well, not whodunit, uh, a whodunit, a kind of procedural thing, a police procedural, you kind of need it to go from A to B. And I watched it with my son a few years back and it was the first time he'd seen it. And when he got to the end, and there's that business with, um, with Rutger Hauer is, is sort of pursuing Harrison Ford through the, through the old building and sticking his head through the wall and kind of um, torturing him and stuff. Um, my son was just laughing and he was saying, why is he doing this? And I had to say, I've got no idea. I don't know why he's doing this. This bears no relation to anything that his character has done at all in the course of the movie. He's just doing it because it looks cool. Um, and I, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen through that in the eighties because I was, I was so fascinated by the, by the, the, the atmosphere. But of course, I guess the atmosphere is kind of familiar to someone of my son's age. So, uh, so he was immediately <laughs> drawn to the, uh, the weirdness of, um, of, of, of what people do. Um, so that's my take on Blade Runner, really. It's, it's amazing and, and fantastic, but not as amazing and fantastic as I thought it was in, in the 1980s. And also probably the most misogynistic mainstream movie I've really seen, um, and I, you can sort of say that's part of the atmosphere, you know, okay, this vision of the future is, is somewhere, what, something where, where women are, are literally objects, um, but it still kind of leaves a slightly bad taste now. I suspect it isn't, you know, this is the thing, I suspect it isn't meant to be part of the atmosphere. It, 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 it kind of feels queasy to me. How is the film presented in a, in a misogynistic way? Or how does it reflect misogynistic values? Well, it's, it's I mean, all the, all the women in, and I'm, I'm not a great, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not sort of politically correct and I'm not one for reviewing, I don't believe in reviewing films in terms of politics, okay? I'm, I'm not, I, I think that's a, a reductive way to review a work of art is saying, oh, you know, does this agree with my politics or not? Um, so this isn't a, a line that I would normally be particularly interested in taking with a film, but you can't avoid it with Blade Runner because all the women are, are I mean, they're literally objects, they're machines. Um, and two of them are, are killed in, in, in quite graphic slow motion. Um, there, there are four replicants who, who, who Deckard, the hero, has to, has to hunt down and kill. And the two men, are, are, you know, one of them is, is sort of shot fairly quickly and falls over. And, and Rutger Hauer just dies and Dove goes up to heaven. But the two women, are, their sort of death throes are, are weirdly, um, you know, the, the camera sort of lingers and lingers on them. And it, it, it's kind of sick, really. Um, added to which, you have the, the, the heroine, Rachel, who... who um, Deckard's, the, the love scene between her and Deckard is very strange. It's, it's, it's kind of a rape. It's not, there's, there's something wrong with it. And, you know, maybe this is 
maybe this is all part of, of building up this queasy, unsettling atmosphere of the film. So, so maybe it's perfectly intentional, but, um, but I don't like it, you know? <laughs> it, it puts me off slightly. Um, and a filmmaker, you know, I think a filmmaker is perfectly entitled to, to do this stuff. I don't think, I'm not saying, oh, you can't do that. Because um, if you're trying to, if you're trying to unsettle, then that's, that's, a, that's a tool you can use. But the price you pay is that some people are going to go, oh, I'm not watching this. And, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm watching it, but I'm kind of wary of it. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell whether it's a deliberate tactic to, to, to sort of say, you know, the future is going to be worse than the present and this is one of the ways. Um, or if they just think women exploding in slow motion is kind of cool. That was the most unique take I've ever read on as far as a review of the movie goes. And really, I'm surprised. I'm surprised because there are a lot of people who are far more... Um, far more woke than me. And I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't been torn to bits actually by, by, by feminists and people. I don't read a lot of, I don't read a lot of uh, reviews and things. So I, I don't know, but I assume I'm, I, I'd be surprised if mine was the most um, scathing take on it. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna categorize it as scathing. I would just say that it was, it was a unique perspective on the film and I don't read a lot of movie reviews either. Um, I just happened to cross that one because Blade Runner is one of my all-time favorite movies. When I saw that on your blog, I read that thing uh, word for word, and I was, it did open my mind a little bit to some of the points that you made. And I remembered recently watching that movie, and I did have a similar reaction to the love scene between Deckard and Rachel. I, I did think it was a little bit weird. It is. It's it's part. And it's partly a fashion thing, you know. If you look, if you go back to old, well, not old movies, but movies from the eighties now, they do things that we wouldn't do now, you know. And and, and fashion changes and, and etiquette changes. Um, but there's something really odd about that. And I think even at the time, actually, I think even as a sort of gauche sixteen-year-old, blown away by all the visuals, I think even then I sort of thought this is strange. Um, but uh, it's very much, I mean, it's a lot of the stuff I write about on my blog, I, I find that I'm drawn to, because I'm now incredibly old, <laughs> and I'm kind of drawn to look back at all the stuff that I loved when I was, when I was young. And um, uh, you sort of reevaluate it. You go, you go back now to, to a film that you thought was amazing when you were 16, and, and, and you can look at it with new eyes and, and sort of see the bits that were amazing and the bits that work and, and, and maybe, look at the bits that you have problems with as well. Or you could just look past all of that and enjoy it for a point of nostalgia. Oh yes, for sure you can, yeah, but but I don't think I don't think you can write about it like that. I think you can and there's lots of things there's lots of things that I watch that I don't write about, but occasionally something will I'll think, okay, yes, you know, I want to think about this in more detail. And then I then I tend to write it because because that forces me to to actually work out my opinions. And and you were even less kind, in my opinion, to the second movie, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I had a, I had a strange experience of that because I saw it the first time and I thought this is great, and then I saw it again and I thought this is terrible. <laughs> this is, and then I saw it a third time and I thought, oh no, this is pretty good actually. So it was very odd. It was very odd, and I think a lot of people. I think I think maybe other people had that because 
round about the time it came out, it had the most amazing reviews. And then it had a lot of reviews that were really a bit off. So I think, I think it was, there's, there's something about it that I think it's, I think it's, it grabs you the first time and then you see all the problems with it and then you kind of move past that and, and enjoy it. So um, it's a strange film. And I think I think I, I think I wrote that review after the second viewing and before the third viewing. So possibly if I'd written it after the third viewing, I might have been kinder to it. But I think I was um, fixating on a lot of the things I disliked about it when I, when I, at the time I wrote the review. Well, I recommend anybody go read that blog post because it was really insightful. It was interesting to see a different perspective on it. Um, and I, I, I don't want to give out all the spoilers from the review. I would like people to read it for themselves because it's really interesting. Uh, one, one last question I have about your experience with those two films, side by side, which soundtrack did you prefer? I, I know the, the, the first soundtrack because um, I've had it on CD and stuff for years. And I don't really know the second one because I've only heard it a couple of times in the, in the movie. Um, and they were both very effective. And I like the Zimmer one. I like those great, huge, the, the, the sort of this kind of booming bass note that keeps recurring, which was so powerful. The first time I saw it, it was quite a small cinema in Exeter, which is my local town. And um, they couldn't cope with the, with the bass and the screen rippled <laughs> like a kind of vertical pond every time this, this, this great noise came on. Uh, so that was, that was cool. I like that. And I like the way it keeps kind of hinting at being the Blade Runner theme. And it never is until right at the end when it's really quiet and the snow is coming down and, and just one little piano figure reprises the theme. That's fantastic. But, um, but no, the, the, you know, the first theme is uh, the film. I, I sort of have this, this feeling that the film has, has kind of aged and it's become less impressive with time, but the music has just got better and better. And I, I love the, uh, the Van Gogh score to the first one. And if you get, I, I got a sort of special edition of the CD. It must be like 20th anniversary or something. And it's got an extra, disc on there which is um sort of inspired by Blade Runner it's Vangelis uh compositions but they're kind of inspired by the or remixes or something with lots of spoken word stuff on it and I don't know about you but when I see spoken word on a, on a, a, a track of music I think oh, okay I'm not going to bother with that maybe so it was a while before I got listening to this um this uh disc three um, but it's fantastic. It's great. It sort of like remixes and reuses certain elements and sounds out of the, the, the soundtrack and layers over them, these voices and things. And it's, it's magnificent. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a great devotee of the, the Blade Runner soundtrack. I love them both and I couldn't pick one over the other. Yeah. No, I'm, the, I'm sure if I, if I listened, if I listened in, in more detail to the, the second one, I, I think I would agree. The, the only caveat that I would say to that is I do have the Zimmer soundtrack on loop whenever I'm working. I I listen to that nonstop when I'm doing my work, whether I'm writing or putting stuff together, research. Yeah. Uh, but both soundtracks are incredible, incredible works of music. Now, um, and Zimmer is doing the soundtrack for the new upcoming Dune movie. Are you, are you familiar with the, the new remake of the movie Dune? Yeah, well, I'm familiar with the fact that there's going to be one, um, and I think I saw. I think I saw the trailer. Yes, uh, it's it's the same same team basically as the that created the Blade Runner 2049. So my my expectations for this movie are quite high. Uh, what do you? What's your take on 
the remake of it? I don't know really. I, I'm sort of Dune was one of the, when I was uh, when I was really young and getting into science fiction. Dune was one of the one of the uh, this one of the first big science fiction novels I read, and it's colossal. It's a huge novel, and I plowed through it when I was like twelve or something, and a lot of it must have gone straight over my head. But I do remember sort of being fascinated by this this strange world. But um, I'm not, I'm not. I don't feel desperately keen to go back to it. I'm not that taken with the, the, the storyline or anything or the, the, the characters it's uh, um and I, I kind of enjoyed the, the David Lynch um movie is rubbish you know clearly but it's got some extraordinary stuff in it it's got some beautiful um production design and things really mad sort of Ruritanian military uniforms and, and bizarre kind of brass uh, sort of bronze clad walls and huge buildings and stuff. And when I was writing Mortal Engines, um, that was a sort of touchstone for me. I, I kind of thought, oh yeah, I want this world to look a bit like that. So it's got that sort of strange sort of retro future quality to it. So I, I do like, I, you know, I do like that movie, despite the fact that it's, it's very hard to tell what's going on. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll go and see the new Dune when it comes out. But it's not. I'm not. I'm not kind of hopping about with excitement for it. Really, you know. <laughs> I expect it'll be very good. I've liked all the other Dennis Villeneuve's I've seen. I liked um, Arrival very much. I thought that was a great film. I agree. Yeah, his his films are. I, I think they're groundbreaking in their own right, and he is resetting the bar in a lot of ways for the science fiction genre of filmmaking. Yeah. There's a there's a scene in Arrival where where she first. Oh, is it? Amy Adams, isn't it, the, the actress? And it, she first goes, is flown out to the, the, the site where these alien spaceships are hanging over the landscape. And she's taken through the military base and she's taken out in a Jeep or something and taken into the spaceship. And through the whole of this sequence, apart from a couple of little cuts to just to sort of show you where you are, he's focused on her face completely. And he understands that that's what we need to see. It's not, it's, it's not what it's, you know, not, not the, the special effects or whatever, it's her reaction to them. And um, I thought that was brilliant. That's that. That was a really, a really terrific um, scene. That's exactly what I'm talking about. As far as getting different perspectives on how people see and experience different things. Because uh, when you said that, I visualized that entire sequence in my mind. And when you said they, he focused on her face, you're right. But I never noticed that until you just mentioned it. Uh, I'm going to have to go rewatch that movie now. Thank you. <laughs> me too yeah being that the overarching theme of the podcast is the cold war uh, i like to try to tie in with the cold war in some way the fact that you were born in the 60s grew up in the 70s referenced movies from the 70s and 80s and all of that took place during the cold war that's enough connection to the cold war as far as i'm concerned but I, I would like to get your opinion on this one question that um, has been going through my mind ever since I came up with the idea of doing uh, a sci-fi themed series. How, how do you feel that the Cold War, the, the events of the Cold War influenced filmmaking, writers, Remember when I mentioned how I think the coronavirus is going to have a huge impact on the creative endeavors going forward? How do you think that the Cold War 
influenced the creative endeavors of, of the generations that it impacted? I, I, I think it was sort of the pond that we swam in really. So it's quite difficult to, to tell because everything was influenced by it, I suspect, when I was growing up. Um, and I think it was, pro I think probably it's a very different thing in America and, and, and Britain or, or, or subtly different. Because uh, if you think about the, the 1950s, um, which is when a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, it sort of starts to be generated. Um, you think about the difference between America, which was, was kind of booming and, and you know, the American dream was underway and you had huge cars and refrigerators and the consumer society. And Britain was basically a kind of pile of rubble, um, skint. It lost everything pretty much in the war. And, uh, and so I, th I think you can see that in science fiction, actually. I think in America, you get these, this, this much more sort of, um, much more sort of gung-ho kind of, uh, kind of um, uh, square-jawed heroes with a ray gun off to conquer the universe kind of science fiction developing. Whereas in Britain, you get something kind of bleaker and darker and more paranoid. And um, that's, that's quite interesting. I, th I, think, I, think, um, I think British science fiction has, is much kind of more cynical and much um, darker and odder in many ways. Um, much less fun often, but uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's superior, but there's a distinctly different flavor. Uh, to, to British and American science fiction. Um, so that's interesting. I think they are linked by, by paranoia, which I guess would be the great overriding um, theme of, the, of, of Cold War culture. This idea that you can't trust anybody and that you know, invaders may pop up at any moment and they may, may be disguised, you know, sort of the invasion of the body snatchers thing. Um, this notion that people may be replaced or uh, duplicates may arrive, that kind of thing sort of echoes through through both. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, clearly all, all the stuff I read when I, when I was growing up, you, you know, either it was, either it was reflecting that or it was deliberately trying to escape from it. Uh, but even the escapist stuff, you know, even things like Star Trek, actually, there has been a war, hasn't there? You know, the Cold War has, has gone hot at some point. And then in the aftermath, kind of the federation has arisen um so it was this great kind of it was kind of on everybody's minds to some extent and as with what i hope will happen with with the coronavirus i think um i think the, the ones that do it most interestingly are the ones that don't tackle it directly but it's just like a kind of flavor yes i yeah i, I think you're completely on point with that um how about what do you think the subgenre of post-apocalyptic fiction, um, how was that influenced by the Cold War? Do you think that was a direct, more of a direct influence or a more of an indirect influence? Yeah, it's fairly, it's fairly rare to find post-apocalyptic fiction before, isn't it? I mean, there are examples. There's a book called After London by Richard Jeffries, which is from like the 1870s, which is, is sort of set in, the, in, a, in a swamp where London once stood. Um, but, uh, but I don't think you encounter an awful lot of post-apocalyptic novels until um, the 50s and then of course there are lots because suddenly there there are weapons that could destroy civilization as we know it so that figures 
Um, and then, and then, of course, it's a very wide subgenre because uh, because um, you know you, you get these tremendously bleak and realistic um, portrayals of uh, I, I can't think offhand of fictional ones, but there's a there's a film called The War Game that was made for the BBC over here and then not shown because it was regarded as too disturbing, um, which sort of imagines a, a you know a post nuclear bomb society. Um, and then you get the kind of the Mad Max kind of thing where it's sort of more fun <laughs> and it's, uh, it becomes a sort of wish fulfillment. I think, there's, I think there's a strong element of wish fulfillment in a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction, actually. It's often quite a dark wish fulfillment, but it's this idea that, you know, maybe I won't have to go and do my boring job or, or finish my exams at school. Maybe I'll get to zoom around the wasteland on a souped up dune buggy instead. That might be the future. I, th I think there's something quite attractive about it. So uh, it's, it's an interesting thing, post-apocalyptic. And that's very much where Mortal Engines, where my first novel kind of fits in. That's very much the sort of, a, oh, hooray, you know, we can sweep away our civilization and have one that's goofier and, uh, <laughs> and more fun. Well, you said that the, uh, the world from the movie Dune was uh, a bit influential on your writing of that book. But do you think that the movie uh, Mad Max or The Road Warrior in a way influenced your writing as well? I'm sure it did. Um, I, I, I really like that, that film. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a great movie of the 80s, Mad Max 2. The first one, I, the first one I, I saw, I've only seen it once at the cinema, you know, when I was like 16 or something. And I don't remember being particularly taken with it. But the second one is, is, is mad. And... and in a way, almost perfect because it's so simple. It's, you know, here are the goodies, here are the baddies, here is the sort of lone uh, hero who's got to kind of negotiate between the two. It's, it's all like a diagram of a movie and it's, it's all the stronger because of that. And I think they, 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 they caught that very nicely in, uh, in Fury Road and the, the, the recent reboot. I, I, that has very much the same simplicity to it. I love them. Um, so yeah, I'm sure they were an influence. I'm sure I was thinking, yeah, that kind of Mad Max kind of thing. But um, but I don't think in plot terms they are. I mean, in plot terms, Mortal Engines is more kind of Dickens or something. You know, it's it's much more. It's a much more complex society. But but there is that sort of thing of, of sweeping away what we've got and replacing it with what you want. I absolutely could talk about the Cold War for an hour or two. But uh, no, I think you you tied it in really nicely. Um, with the way that, and, and the thing when, when we talked about the post-apocalyptic genre or subgenre, um, I agree with you that I don't, you don't really see a lot of, um, post-apocalyptic fiction prior to the 1950s. Um, I mean, at least not that I'm aware of. Well, there's H.G. Wells. I mean, the end of the War of the Worlds is, 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 you know, London has been pretty, or England has been pretty much flattened by the Martians. And he wrote a great book called the, well, I don't know if it's a great book, but it's, it's, it's a prescient book called The War in the Air, which he wrote in, it was before the First World War. And uh, it's, it's a, a great war takes place between the European powers using airships and, and bombs. And that, en that ends up very, very post-apocalyptic with sort of roving bands of air pirates. Um, moving across this looted landscape so so it's there it's uh, it's a possibility that I think the Victorians were able to look forward and, and, and see that, that there might be trouble ahead um, but it really it really kicks in as a genre a, a genre of its own I think in the in the 50s and 
realistically, the the landscape of Europe after World War One really was a post-apocalyptic world. Absolutely, yes. I mean, if you look at you look at paintings by somebody like is it Paul Nash or is it John Nash? I can't remember quite. Um, of the uh, the Western Front, it's it's a post-apocalyptic landscape. It's this it's this endless plain of mud with dead trees sticking out of it. It's um, it's science fiction, really. Um, it really is science fiction with the, with the, you know, the sort of early tanks crawling through this stuff. That, that's very much where Mortal Engines comes from, really. I'll tell you what actually inspired. I think one of the first things that inspired Mortal Engines was I went to the, um, the Imperial War Museum in London, which is, which is a very good museum, which gathers stuff from mostly the, the two world wars. And in one of the cases there, there is a mask which uh, World War I tank crews um, made for themselves because after they'd been in action a couple of times in these new machines, they found that when bullets struck the outside of the tank, bits of molten metal would fly around inside, causing um, inconvenience and distress. So they made these masks for themselves. And it's like a leather face mask with, with wire mesh eye goggles and hanging from, this part covers like your eyes and forehead and nose. And then hanging from that is a sheet of chain mail. Uh, so it's this it's this bizarre object. It's it's clearly modern. It's got this sort of this sort of insectile goggle kind of thing, um, and at the same time it's medieval because it's literally got chainmail hanging off it. And it's that strange mixture of the the future and the past that I that set me off. I think down the Mortal Engines road. I was heading that way already, but you know that that was one of the like key images. Oh, interesting. Thank you for sharing that anecdote. That's very very cool. Very relevant too. I, I, I think I'd forgotten that one. So <laughs> I, I, have, I don't think I've, I've mentioned that to anybody else. Glad we dug up that memory. That's a good yeah. one. But, but yes, so, you know, uh, the, the First World War is an apocalyptic landscape. And then after the Second World War, if you, you see there are sort of um, films taken from, from aircraft flying over the ruins of, of Berlin and Hamburg and, and Frankfurt and places. And they're just, it's just mile upon mile of completely ruined buildings just just like walls standing and things and uh, I mean London you know bits of London looked like that as well and, and bits of most Western European cities I guess it's um, it's uh, you, you can kind of see where so so it's the bomb that, that probably sparks off the the, the interest in post-apocalyptic stuff but that's things that's the stuff that the writers would have been drawing on which brings me back to that point about the writers being people who had been through this experience, you know, they, they'd, they'd uh, you know, driven or marched through these cities, a lot of them. And, and so they've got the, uh, the sort of visual reference to draw on to make their, their post-nuclear worlds feel, feel realistic. Um, and then the other thing, of course, that you get in the 50s that you get in America and Britain, and I think it probably is an American genre to start with, is the the kind of giant insect movies, the kind of uh, atomic mutant thing, um, which is which is clearly part of it as well. It's this, um, you know, they can't, you know, they don't want to make movies directly about about the bombs, so they make them about giant ants or or whatever. Yeah, and your your insights are quite unique. I mean, it's it's very interesting talking to you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to spend this with me. Tell people how they can get in touch with you or learn more about your work. Um, yep, uh, because of the um, the website calamity that I mentioned earlier, I don't actually have a website at the moment. I'm hoping that will be 
fixed in, um, you know, I'll get a new one sorted out in the next month or so. Um, so at the moment, it's the blog, Station Zero on Blogger. And uh, I'm on Twitter as Philip Reeve one um, I have a Facebook page, which I tend not to use very much. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, probably Twitter is the easiest place to find me, Philip Reeve one uh, Okay. Hey, uh, Philip, thank you again for joining me for this Dead Hand Radio Sci-Fi November special edition of the podcast. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. It's been really nice talking to you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Again, thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you.